Welcome to Faith, Reason, and Geekdom. I'm your genuflexer, Roger. My brothers and sisters in Christ, join me every week as we work out these three perspectives in our everyday lives. That's what I call Christian genuflexing. guys for joining me today it's going to be about c.s lewis's book the fictional work the great divorce which was uh, originally uh, in the newspaper in 1944 and 1945 and then turned into a book this is a very philosophical very great work of fiction that was like c.s lewis's one of his greatest books and i say one of the greatest fictions of all time excellent book if you have not read it you guys need to read it we're gonna hit it from the faith from the reason and the geek side so faith we're gonna talk a little bit about purgatory a little bit once we start getting into the flow of the actual book and the story from the spiritual side talk a little bit about that from the reason side, we're going to try to analyze this from a, a literature, from a little bit of a philosophical standpoint, working that out. And the geekdom, I thought it would be fun to do like a little twist, kind of like if if I wanted this movie made, which why is it not? Like, should it be made into a movie? Like, yes, please, it should be made into a movie. And if I'm going to do a movie, who would I cast? What director would I put in this movie? And that's gonna be like a fun twist for our geekdom side, for our pop culture, put this a little bit of pop culture spin in this. So while I'm going through this, just imagine when we get to these characters. I didn't cast all of them, not the entire whole story, because we can do hours, multiple podcast episodes, but just a few. Our narrator, the protagonist, our main guy, he's gonna be played by the British actor Nicholas Holt. He came out and he played Beast in the X-Men Days of Future Past, X-Men First Class. He even played uh, Tolkien in the movie, which I believe it was just called Tolkien. So he's going to be the narrator. So imagine him walking us through. When he's walking through, we're going to be looking from his perspective. Imagine Nicholas Holt in these conversations. The intellectual man, Ike. Now we meet him and I was thinking like this guy is a smart guy. Who would I want to cast him as? Who would I put him in? I'm going to go with uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor. Great actor. If you guys seen him, he was the lead actor in 12 Years a Slave. He was in uh, Z for Zachariah and he played one of the villains in uh, Doctor Strange, the Marvel. So he's in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Probably see him coming up pretty soon. Ejiofor, great actor, love him. He's one of my, whenever I see him, I love The Secret in Their Eyes. He's in a bunch of movies. Whenever I see him, uh, I think The Martian, he came out of Small Road in there. I love to see that guy. Sir Archibald, the theologian. So we're going to get in a little bit about that too. I'm going to put, I think this is perfect casting. Check this out. Benedict Cumberbatch, the batch himself. Benedict Cumberbatch is going to be the theologian. In this story of the great divorce, Frank, we're gonna, I casted him because he's a two parter. Frank, you know, the dwarf element and the Targaryen element, P. 
Peter Dinklage from Game of Thrones fame. I was also also uh, with Nicholas Holt in Days of Future Past. Peter Dinklage from Game of Thrones fame. He was also cast alongside Nicholas Holt in Days of Future Past. He's going to play the dwarf. The Targaryen is going to be played by Christopher Escaton. Now, he's a small, he's not a big, big famous uh, actor, but he's a really good actor. If you guys seen him in that horrible, horrible movie that we shall not name, the G.I. Joe that came out, what, seven, eight, maybe even ten years ago, uh, he played Destro. He was also in the HBO series The Leftovers. Uh, excellent, excellent show, by the way. Pam, uh, who is one of the ghosts that refuses to join uh, her son, she, she will not go into heaven without her son, Michael, in heaven. So this is going to be played by, and I, I, I imagine her, I was like, she came, popped in my head. I was like, she could be, I would put her in this, Diane Keaton. Diane Keaton, uh, if you've seen, uh, which I, I wouldn't recommend it, but I did see the first season. Season two, I saw a few episodes and I just gave up because it was just too too much debauchery. I, I couldn't handle it. I gave up on season two. But season one, again, I would not recommend it for everybody, but the HBO series, uh, The Young Young Pope, season one, she played the nun. She was a great actress in there. She comes out in there. Also, The Family Stone and a few little small parts you see her in. Uh, here and there she's gonna be pam and if i had this movie directed and i could because this is a fantasy and this isn't real i'm gonna put vincent ward as the director and mainly because he was the one that directed uh what dreams may come with robin williams if you guys seen that movie he also did a uh, river queen uh he's not again not a big big director he was one of the producers of the last samurai with tom cruise that's an awesome movie awesome movie you guys haven't checked that out so Vincent Ward, he's a director, and uh, George McDonald. I forgot to mention him. This I saved him. I saved him because this is. I think this is great. George McDonald. He was born in you know eighteen twenty four, died nineteen oh five. He comes out in this uh, C.S. Lewis's book. He's gonna be played by Ewan McGregor. Imagine this Scottish author George McDonald being played by Ewan McGregor. Imagine the big beard, fellow Scotchman as well. I think that's perfect casting. Imagine that when, when we're going through there. Nicholas Holt, Ewan McGregor, Chewy Two Edge of Four, Benedict Cumberbatch, Peter Dinklage, Christopher Escaton, and uh, Diane Keaton, directed by Vince's Ward, who did, again, What Dreams May Come, the Robin Williams movie. I think that's excellent. So as we go through this, I just want you guys to picture those actors in there. And of course, I might bring them up in here. So that's going to be sprinkle this whole episode with a little bit of pop culture from the uh, geekdom side. So let's get into this. Okay, so let's get into chapter chapter one in this work of fiction by C.S. Lewis, the great, great author, one of my favorites. This starts out with the unknown that you don't see his name or anything, the narrator, as we would call him. He's just standing around the long street. He doesn't remember anything, really. He just we're just dropped right into the plot. He's waiting for a bus stop, pretty much. It's a bus stop. And he's sitting there. He sees a bunch of people, and they're just walking around. And it's a dark, dingy street. There's, like, not a good place. It's very cloudy of, of people arguing, people fighting, people fussing, people talking. They're just standing in there waiting for a bus. People are agitated. They're very angry, frustrated, 
And this is not a good town to be in. It's very gloomy, very, very gloomy town. So you hear the big man over here is the short man getting angry. He punches him in the face. I mean, there's everything's going on while they're just waiting for this bus stop that we, again, we're just dropped in the plot. We don't really know what's going on. All of a sudden, the bus arrives, and it's a great, amazing, lightly, brightly lit bus vehicle driving down by a driver who seems almost blinding to all the people that are waiting there. He's full of, full of light all over his face. They start pushing and shoving. They're trying to get into the bus, even though there's clearly enough room. There's enough room for everybody in the bus, but it doesn't matter. The people in this dark and gloomy town, this gray town, are still fighting everything, trying to get up uh, get up on this bus, which most of them are trying to see where is this bus going to? What, what, what is it going to be better? Is it going to be good? Our narrator has many conversations with different people, different people on the bus, a poet. They have different people, the big man, the short man, the bus flies and takes off the ground. And they're looking out of the window and they just see like gray town that they're about to leave. And they just good riddance to that town. It's not a good place to be in. There's a lot of sense of desperation. There's no happiness in this fictional gray town. But we learn while this bus, we do learn a little bit about this gray town, that it's infinitely large place full of unhappy people. They're not satisfied. They're searching for something. And this is supposed to be like an allegory for like a purgatory. And they're going to go to heaven and get a glimpse of that. So just imagine how he puts us in the mind frame. Imagine Nicholas Holt, the narrator, the main guy, dealing with these violent people, these seemingly selfish people waiting for a bus to go to leave this town that's just this huge town that nobody seems to be happy in. And while they're in the air, the bus, a fight breaks out, knives and guns, everything. like It's just chaos inside this bus all over. While they're not even, they barely lift it off the ground, they're flying in the air. It's just different people, different attitudes, personalities. And then the fight is pretty, it's over. It's over before it even starts. Uh, our narrator's sitting around. So during the scuffle, he moves around. People getting shifted around. So now he has a new person to sit next to, the intellectual man. And this is played by, again, uh, Chewy Chew Ejiofor. So imagine Holt and uh, Ejiofor having this conversation. And he talks him, uh, he's teaching him a little bit about the gray town. He tells them that it's it's eternal, pretty. It's it's eternal. There's always new people coming into town, but they're not pleasant people. The new arrivals are never pleasant in this gray town. People seem to come here, move in, and then they start to drift away. They start to move further and further miles and miles away from the bus stop. There's even famous people. Julius Caesar is mentioned, of course. Uh, Genghis Khan, even Napoleon, you know, the big... The, the big uh, historical fictional figures that we would we would imagine to be in this miserable town. The intellectual man uh, is telling them that this is only going to get bigger and bigger and longer and longer. And people are going to be continue to drift away and move away because nobody wants to be around each other. Everybody's miserable. Why would they? The intellectual man, he seems to have a scheme to have people move closer towards the bus stop instead of moving and drifting away. You need humans to survive. We need that connection to survive. We know during this pandemic how important that actual human interaction is. And the intellectual man has an interior, another motive. He's trying to sell things. He's 
trying to capitalize, make a profit. And he explains that it's always rainy and gray and water or rain can't seem to keep the houses safe from that. The intellectual man whispers, it will be dark presently and warns our protagonist that it's nighttime when people come outside. Everybody in the gray town is just there indoors. Uh, but then at night, that's when they, they come out. We get introduced to another, the big man is what he's called. He's, he's yelling everybody to be quiet. Uh, calls the intellectual man, Ike. People are trying to say that the intelligent man is wrong and that he doesn't know what he's talking about. It'll, it'll never get dark. It's just going to stay gray and it's going to get, uh, it's gonna be lighter. It, it, it might be lighter. It might become uh, less gray. But as him and the intellectual man for sitting there it starts to become brighter outside outside of the window the bus window they see the light everything's starting to get brighter coming from this dark gray dingy town and they're not very uh happy with this they kind of get disoriented with the light the passengers it, it seems to uh disturb them this warmth this sunshine coming through it's very represents salvation can be painful and that's what we'll talk about right now it's it's salvation might be painful because they're they're not it's not they're not having a pleasant go from the sunshine now this is what i want to talk about when it comes to pertains to purgatory uh, it's a church uh doctrine and we all sin okay we all all of us can sin nobody will be completely clean right now on this earth but nothing can be unclean in heaven. There must be like a final purification. And it's not just Catholics that believe in purgatory. There are other uh, Protestants and other denominations that believe in a purgatory or something similar to a purgatory. So it's not just Catholics. It could be Orthodox and other Protestants. But it makes sense. Think about like a real deathbed confession, right? Imagine a real one. But maybe that guy was a serial uh, rapist or something like that. It, it wouldn't really be justice if he just goes straight to heaven. Even if it was a true, real conversion, it just doesn't seem just justified for a serial rapist to go straight to heaven. And, and I want to make this clear: it's not a purgatory. It's not a like a second chance. Not oh, to to avoid hell, you must be without mortal sin to be able to go even in purgatory. And there will be suffering also, but there will also be joy. Remember, purgatory is not hell. And we can pray for people that are in purgatory. I, I just want to say a couple Bible verses, uh, Matthew 5.19. Whoever then relaxes, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But he who does them and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So you see that there will be people that will have a higher, higher glory, right? But you do see that there will be maybe sinful people in heaven or not sinful people that sin in heaven, but that have sinned. But then how did they get into heaven if heaven is a purely spiritual, purified, only the clean could see God, not the unclean? So I like to meditate on that verse. Also, 1 John 5, 16 through 18. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that is not a deadly sin, he will ask. And, if, and God will give him life for those whose sin is not deadly. There is sin which is deadly. I do not say one is to pray for that. 
All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin which is not deadly. We know that anyone born of God does not sin, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. One more Bible verse from 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11 through 15. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation of gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, each man's work will be become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work which any man has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If a man's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, these are what we would talk about. Another little thing, if you think about, like, I know we probably know somebody that they're like, okay, they're, you know, they're a decent person, maybe family or friends. They're like, they're, they're, they're not evil. Or what's the famous that everyone likes to say? They're not Hitlers. Well, I mean, I don't know if you could make Nazi comparisons nowadays without getting canceled. But, I, I'm, you know, someone says, well, at least I'm not Hitler. You know, I'm a good person. I'm not Hitler. Um, we know people that aren't bad, bad, right? But then they're also not, as we would say, heavenly good, right? We know those people in our lives. Would it make sense for them just to go straight to hell or straight to heaven? Just from a human experience that we can experience from our friends and families, we can kind of see how, yeah, purgatory, it just makes sense, right? And, and it's going to be like a purification to get burned up. Like the Bible verse where the angel touches the lips with the coals to be, uh, to be cleaned, right? Burning with the fire. And that's, and that's the imagery we use. Uh, we don't know how time works exactly or anything like that, but we know we can pray for souls in purgatory. And I would advise everybody uh, today, if you hear this, please pray for all those souls that are in purgatory. So now as we progress, the bus bright light, everybody sees the shine. It's beautiful. They see mountains, rivers, beautiful grass. Everything is glorious. It looks like a huge open space of beautiful, just amazing glory. Very much a beautiful place compared to the old uh, dingy, gloomy town. It's, it's almost too real for the people because they don't they kind of get taken aback by this harsh reality of realness. And they start to complain. Even the big man asks the, the driver, uh, when, when, when do we go back? You, you know, so uh, he wants to go back already. People are looking around and, and they're noticing things are, are made of different material. Like I said, realer. They see this material and it's very, it's hard on their bodies because they're almost just like, pretty much like empty they're just like empty bodies and this place is real it's a burden it's heavy and they're encouraged to stay by the river you see the mountains it's like the entry point the river it's it's just it's we follow the river it's so beautiful heavenly spirits are there they they meet these people and they're happy they're beautiful they're glorious they they just seem different. They're not like the spirits on the, in the gray town. Their bodies are solid, dressed in robes, just looking glorious, looking beautiful. So the spirits move closer to these groups of ghosts that we have, that we've been following with the narrator. 
the big man again he's not really he's not really having it but he sees somebody he recognizes him and calls him lynn and he starts to realize that this guy's a murderer he murdered a man named jack and then that's when him and they they both have this conversation about how the big man's like oh i'm a good person i never killed anybody i never killed anybody and lynn he's in heaven right because he he's more real but he's trying to explain to him that yes you you may not have ever killed anybody but you killed people in your heart. Every day you murdered people in your heart. Talking about true love and how the big ghost anger is keeping him away from the love of Christ. Even though he says he made a good life and the murderer turned to God and was able to get the salvation only in humility and humbly with God's grace, only with humility, whereas the big man thinks himself better of other people who have other sins that aren't him. And we know that when we know that we have sins and we think we're better than other people because, well, I don't have that sin. I don't have that sin. So I I must be a better person. But the things you're doing might be worse than the other person that's doing something that you think or you don't have a problem with or you don't struggle with. We all know situations like that. So we got our narrator, a.k.a. Nicholas Holt, (laughs) going towards the waterfall and he noticed somebody that he recognized it's it's our man the intelligent man from the bus ike and he's been trying for hours to approach these apples there's like an apple tree golden falling from the tree and he's trying to get there but again like i said there's the materials more real so it's very burdensome it's heavy it's heavy they're more real they're trying to move around but the spirits are trying to explain to them it gets better just keep moving just keep moving so our intelligent man's trying to get these golden apples, just trying to fill them with as much golden apples as he can so then he can limp and struggle back to the bus. But then you hear a voice cry, fool, put it down. And it seems to come from the waterfall. And it's really like a big, bright, beautiful angel, a water giant, as you can say. And he says, there's no room for apples in hell, that he should learn to stay here and eat the apples. But he doesn't listen. He continues to go back and struggle back to the bus, limping in pain because he's not real yet. And and this ground is more realer than anything. And it's a heavy, heavy burdensome. The waterfall, you can see this as symbol for salvation. The desire for those apples, that's not the problem. The problem is that he's using them in the wrong way. He's remember this this is the guy who wants to try to try to convince people, try to make a profit. And that is what the problem is right there. Our protagonist uh, meets the hard-bitten ghost as he's caught and he's a extremely extremely cynical guy. And he's trying to tell him that, you know, this this real, this real real place Maybe this is heaven. Maybe it's not. He's a very cynical guy. He doesn't believe it. Everyone's on the same side. They're all working together. You know, you you met we met people like this, and uh, uh, hell doesn't exist. They don't exist. Heaven doesn't exist. Whatever. But he's saying, man, this place is so real. It hurts to move the ground. Imagine when it starts raining. Though it, it's gonna be like bullets to us. It's just gonna rip through us. It's going to rip us to pieces from this this conspiracy cynical guy that's spouting this stuff. And he's saying, yeah, it, this is going to destroy us. And our character kind of realizes that. And he's not feeling so good about this time right now. Nicholas Holt, the narrator, he's not feeling in the best of spirits. But he keeps moving forward anyway. He moves towards the trees to try to see if, if it rains, uh, he might be safe. He meets another ghost that's afraid to go to the mountains. 
there's a lot of shame. And another ghost is trying to convince, like, hey, come out, step out. And says, I, I, the ghost is complaining and sobs and crying and says, I wish I was never born. I wish I was never born. The ghost that's afraid of the mountains, afraid of, of heaven. She's ashamed of the way she's dressed. Like the other people are, are, are dressed and she's ashamed. We know this, this female ghost, she's vain. She's using her, her vanity, her superficiality, her appearance to take over, to reject grace. And then because this is a work of fiction, unicorns out of nowhere just to hurt a unicorns come out. <laughs> so he, our narrator runs away. He runs away. Then he hears a voice, a Scottish voice calling to him. He turns around and he sees a huge man with a long manly beard. And the man is one of the spirits shining, just ageless soul. And uh, he knows who this guy is. And he says, I'm George MacDonald, the famous author and which is one of my best casting, I would have to say, is going to be played by Ewan McGregor. Imagine him with that glorious beard and that Scottish accent. That's, I'm actually very proud of that casting, by the way. Nicholas Holt and uh, Ewan McGregor talking. So he meets him, and he's, he's our narrator. one of the narrator's favorite, favorite writers. So he calls him, you know, son, our protagonist, and he's going to be pretty much like his guide he's going to kind of explain stuff to him uh how the people of hell are allowed to visit the river but instead they they don't stay they opt for other different options some do but a lot of them don't the great town is hell is what he's explaining to him but they don't want to leave it around they don't want to leave it behind and that they're standing in the valley of shadow of life but there are people that reject that he starts to get a little confused and, and starts to explain a little bit more about how good and evil, uh, they're like re a retrospective. The experiences we have of good and evil, it's, it's a human's intuition, our, our experience for what kind of life it, is it. And that our earth could be, in a way, a hell for us, but it could be a way to, to also get us to heaven, but also for others for hell. And he asks them the question, is it true that heaven and hell are only states of mind? And McDonald says that, that hell is a state of mind. Any selfish state of mind is a form of hell. But heaven, on the other hand, is a literal, real place and with real things. It's reality itself. And then they get into a little bit of uh, purgatory between you know the Protestants and, and Catholics and a little bit of, of what the difference is. And I think we talked a little bit about purgatory from the faith, working it out. But they continue their discussion about the souls that come to the valley of shadow of life, and they go back to their town. And he quotes that beautiful uh, John Milton quote, McDonald. And I can imagine you and McGregor saying this, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. The souls are in heaven, they choose to be there. They're like spoiled ch children, that rather sulk than apologize. And he talks to him about different uh, vices, different pleasures, different, different, different things of that sorts. And McDonald reminisces about a man named Sir Archibald, who is played by, you know, our, our fake fantasy is going to be Benedict Cumberbatch, the theologian. And how he was a, a great writer, great investigator, philosopher, studied philosophy, studied uh, just different, read literature, books, craved knowledge more than anything. But then he died and came to the valley. 
and uh, he was not satisfied. He was not satisfied because he cared more about the intellectual side than about God, than about happiness, and instead chose to go to hell instead of continuing to go to heaven. He was more interested in providing the existence of God and forgot how to love God. This, I think, is incredible because it is true. Sometimes we can get in. I know I'm guilty of being in love with the, the philosophy, with the theology, with the um, apologetics and learning and learning and maybe trying to, to, to help people or trying to disprove people or trying to, to make a good argument and, and try to show that God exists and, and uh, Jesus Christ, resurrection and the church. But if we don't love God and love neighbor, what is it for? We're just like Benedict Cumberbatch, the theologian, Sir Archibald. We're just like him. We can't love the world more than God. And if we love the world and knowledge more than God, it's not going to fulfill us. And there's a very danger to a one-sided, one-way street, an intellectual life that no longer is interested in actual God himself. Instead, is with the pure logic and that's it. There's no no real worship. There's no e, uh, helping people to get there. There's no loving the, the poor. There's none of that. There's just pure intellectual, which again, I love intellectual stuff and we should do more of that. But let's not be uh, make it a one-way street that it's only a one-side street. We have to also do that actual real, real love. And that's very important for us to know. There's so much stuff, like I said, we're not going to hit on every single conversation. You guys should really, 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 really read the book. It's a must. You got to. So let me, I did want to jump forward to when George McDonald and our uh, protagonist move forward and they see a, a, a woman's ghost talking to the spirit. It's her brother. And they're talking about uh, Michael, which we find out is uh, Pam, her, her son. But he's up in the mountains. He's already in the he's in the mountains. And Pam is angry with her brother, the spirit, the real spirit. And she's angry and she wants to see her son right now. Like right now. And he explains you're not you're not real enough, solid enough to be with him. But Pam, she doesn't want to hear it. She has to be with her son. And he explains that she must be able to want have to see God first before she can go to the mountains and see her son. But Pam, which is again played by Diane Keaton, her love for God is not as big as her love for Michael. And that's not a good thing to love the creature more than the created. Pam is a, a one of those mothers and I know there's a lot and we can't love anything above God. And for a mother, it could be very hard, even fathers too. Even fathers too, but she's loving the creature more than the created, and she wants to see her son Michael. And but if she really loved him, then she would love God first. The ghost, the brother, is trying to talk to her, and she just says that he's cruel, that she's he's wicked, that she's loved her son more than anything. All the memories, all the memories she spent with them, mourning his death when when he passed. And she refuses to forget him, Michael. And she yells, Michael is mine. And she sees, she really sees her son, not, not in a good love, not in the, the, the godly love, but as something 
to own. Like she says, Michael was mine. And it shows that she really thinks it's it's her claim. It's not her love for her son, but it's her claim to her son. Instead of being humble, unselfish, real love, she is becoming selfish, controlling, just like controlling her son. And if she doesn't love God, then she can't really love other people. She's going to be that controlling person, that selfish person that wants uh, Michael himself, but not out of real love, but only out of selfishness. She wants to see him now. She doesn't want to wait for heaven. She has a, a unhealthy obsession with him. And that's important to realize that we must uh, love God before anything else. And George McDonald explains to the narrator a little bit about that. And that's what he's trying to tell them because he's thinking, well, how can that love be bad? Like she loves her son so greatly. How can that be bad? But again, it's, it's easy to twist that love into selfish, corrupt love. That, that is not good. It must be real, virtuous love. And Pam, Diane Keaton, is not showing that for Michael at all. So then they go on and they see the lizard, the ghost with the small lizard that's hissing and the spirit's just trying to kill it. But he, he explains that it's, it's, it's going to be, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt, but just let me kill it. It's about sacrifice. The angel and the sacrifice. It's a powerful thing. It turns into the, a stallion, the little lizard. And it, it, it's, a, it's a beautiful symbol that we have to make sacrifices and in God being rewarded in, in heaven. But we have to take that leap of faith. And that requires loving God. Making that leap of faith. Because the the ghost with the lizard, he's very reluctant. Very reluctant. He doesn't want him to kill it. But the angel's like, I, I, I can kill it. I'll kill it for you right now. But he doesn't have that faith. He know, Even though the man knows that lizard's bad for him. He doesn't want to completely let go. But we must completely let go. That is the point that we must completely let go and use that sacrifice. So we jump forward and we meet Sarah. So now we get to Frank, the dwarf, the Targaryen, Sarah Smith. She's being celebrated and she sees Frank. And Frank's going to be played by, well, the dwarf by Peter Dinklage. If you, again, you've seen him in X-Men, Game of Thrones. He comes out in, in a bunch of different stuff. Uh, and Christopher Eschaton's going to play the Targaryen. So Sarah knows this person and knows he's very theatrical. Very, He's a very uh, self-pitying person. And he's always using pity as a weapon. Always trying to hurt her. He, she, he's trying to control her. And she's trying to say, come with me to the mountains. Come with me to the mountains. I know real love. I know what real love is. And Frank sees that as like an offensive saying, oh, you didn't really love me then. He's trying to use his sadness, his guilt to guilt people. And he sees it as a pleasure and he's trying to use it to pretend to be hurt, trying to make Sarah pity him. But she's in heaven and she knows real love. So he tries to use that against her in a very selfish way. Instead of finding that truth, he wants to use guilt as a weapon but the dwarf just keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller and sarah's trying to talk the real spirit's trying to talk sense into him the targaryen just keeps going on and on and on but 
the dwarf keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller until he just disappears. And he's sad because he's he says, you don't need me no more because he, he wants to be the one that's needed. But instead, Sarah knows real love. He knows she knows God and he feels offended by that, which is crazy. If you think about that, it's you shouldn't be offended at that. You should want that. But she she's right. She doesn't really need him. She's happy. She's truly, truly happy. And Frank tries to use that against her in a selfish way to try to manipulate people. And we know that is not the right thing to do. That he says, Christopher Eschaton, a Targaryen, says, yells, I can't forget it, which he had said. And he refuses to give in to God's grace, God's love, salvation. Of course, he accused her of not really, really loving him and when they were on earth, which is ridiculous. It's just that you've, she found real love. She, she found God, salvation, heaven. That, that is real. Frank's completely gone by this point. And she walks away. She walks away and leaves. So now we have McDonald and the narrator having these great questions, these philosophical questions, which again, I've said it a thousand times. You guys need to read this book. But we see that whether God knows the ultimate fate of humanity or not, and that's what they're discussing, but you have to know that he does. He does. He sees everything. He's smart. He sees God. He, he knows everything. And they do see this huge uh, chessboard, this chessboard, which, which could symbolize the universe. And the difference between just our mind and God's is vast. And there's, it's, not even a, it's not even a comparison. It's a small thing to a great, great, huge, beautiful intellect that we can't even imagine we can't control or, or try to try to uh, predict every single thing it, it, God is so big we just know what he's not it's hard to wrap your mind around that and we see the chessboard and God is the chess master he is the master of the game but we have free will we have we do have that but people argue back if we do or don't but McDonald's kind of explaining, once he's talking to him and, and our narrator, he's kind of explaining about, and he says something to like, answers are beyond human comprehension. And that's true. There's some things that we just cannot comprehend. McDonald even refuses to answer certain questions about human beings, about knowledge, about the world, free will, God. It's so much like extended the questions you could ask. He tries to say that humans operate within space and time and and god is obviously outside of space and time seeing past future future and present and as they're having this great talk about we just got to trust god there's things we're not going to know there's things as humans we shouldn't know just trust in our lord and savior just trust have faith have faith have faith our narrator you see him he's looking at uh george mcdonald ewan mcgregor he's becoming brighter and these voices, these people around, they're singing. All the other real spirits are singing around him. And the sun rises in the east. And, they, and he tries to hide from the light. He's just a ghost, right? He has to use humility. And he tries to hide from it. He even tries to hide behind uh, George McDonald's clothes. He hides behind him to try to, to, to move his face in the cloth, just cover it. But as that's happening, a book falls on his head. 
He looks around. He's in his room. The clock is striking three o'clock. So now we see this as the book is in, <laughs> it's interesting. The book hits him on the head, but he's returning to his waking life. He's waking up from as uh, not a dream, but a vision, as you can say. And hopefully he can pull some some good lessons out and, and live it, live it out in his own life on earth that he needs to awake up. It's pretty, like a wake up call to God, even though this world can seem tough. It's better than that gray, dingy town where everybody's angry and fighting. He, he, uh, earth can be our own hell, an eternal one, and heaven is eternal. That's what we must remember as our narrator wakes up from his dream or vision. Uh, but he's he's back in his home in his study, and hopefully he takes the lessons in his fictional world and moves it forward and uses that to love God. There's so much stuff that we did not cover in this time that we had, but you guys read the book, uh, read different materials on it, and you're gonna do a little a deep dive. You will enjoy the book. I hope you guys like that little pop culture uh, sprinkling throughout the the story. And I hope you guys enjoyed a little little bit of on purgatory uh, because again, C.S. Lewis did believe in a purgatory. So I do wanna go over a few things though. Shout out a little, some quotes from, from uh, The Great Divorce. I wanna read this quote. I think uh, I like this, this quote from the book is, there have been men before now who got so interested in proving the existence of God that they came to care nothing for God himself. Very poignant with the theologian, Sir Archibald. That's true. We got to be aware of that. We have to be aware of that. Another quote from the book is, If we accept heaven, we shall not be able to retain even the smallest and most intimate sovereigns of hell. Like, the intellectual man trying to take the golden apples back and the angel saying, those won't fit in heaven. Uh, those won't fit in hell. Hell is too small. Another quote from the book, you cannot love a fellow creature fully till you love God. And that pertains to Pam, the ghost that we met. That is very, very true. I like this other, this other quote from uh, The Great Divorce. I gave in and admitted that God was God. Also, there is but one God. That is God. Everything else is good when it looks to him and bad when it turns from him. That is very true because evil was not a creative force. Evil was not original. Evil is a, a lack of a good. It's, it's the lack of a good. So I like that line. And I guess um, the one that I really, really love, I think one of the more of the most famous ones. I mean, there's so many, but this one is from The Great Divorce, a quote. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there can be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. I need to say that part, that little part again. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, 
in the end, thy will be done. Excellent. That, that is a, such a great line. That is such a beautiful, beautiful line. I just, uh, incredible, incredible. The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis. I think uh, it's even might be free on Audible. If you guys have Audible, which I recommend, I believe it's it, it could even be, I, th- I believe they have a free version on it too. So if you guys had the book or maybe you read the book and it's been a while, it's been a few years, you guys should really read it again. There was a lot of things we could have touched on that we didn't. But once again, I really appreciate you guys coming. If you guys could come every Wednesday, every Wednesday to listen to the show, please share it with your friends. Please on Apple, give a five-star rating. Give this to anyone who might be interested in this kind of stuff. We got a lot of great things coming at. Please also email. Email me at faithreasonandgeekdompodcast at gmail.com. Join the Twitter. Join the Facebook. Please subscribe on Google Podcasts. Share it around. Thank you guys for working out Faith, Reason, and Geekdom. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Until next Wednesday, Godspeed.